The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. He said it. Go ahead and open your Bibles with me, if you don't mind, to Acts chapter 5. That's what we're going to be covering here in just a moment. I was excited. It's been months ago. Uh, Dave was over, uh, I think, at our Challenge Youth scene. You all have done that as well. We've had our second annual so far of that. That was a great time for the youth and for everybody involved, really. But Dave was over there, and he, he suggested to me that I might come again this year, asked me if I was up to it. Of course, I jumped on that really quickly. Uh, enjoyed my time here last year, and so I was excited to get to come back once again. Um, after doing so, he said he'd get back with me later. He did. He did exactly what he promised, and he had messaged me and said, uh, if, depending on what uh, week you pick, we're going to be studying through the book of Acts, uh, thinking a two-year series, maybe this year and next. I, I'm not sure, uh, but he said, depending on week, what week you pick, that'll be the chapter you get. And immediately I text back and I picked a week. I mean, I jumped on it. I thought I would love to teach Acts chapter 4. I want Acts chapter 4. And I text him back. In about 15 minutes, he said, good, you'll have Acts 5. And uh, I don't know what happened in that. My calculations were off by a week. And uh, to the life of me, I hadn't figured it out yet. I don't know if VBS did something with that or if I just don't, I don't have an accurate calendar or something. But the more I looked at it, and I'm certain... Acts 4 and 5 contain much of the same information, particularly the, the courage that it took for those disciples, Peter and John are named in those, to stand up, to stand up to the difficulties and the trials around them. And uh, so that's part of what I wanted to get into, and I get to do that anyway. However, I was really more excited about Acts 5 because it does have that very unique account of Ananias and Sapphira there in the first 11 verses. And so uh, what I was instructed to do, I hope this has been holding true from the live streams I've been able to catch up on, it seems to be. I'm going to overview the chapter with you, and then we'll come back and pick a text or two just to more deeply examine. So uh, a couple facts you need to know about me. Number one, um, I am dyslexic. So when you look down at your Bibles and you're reading along and I miss a word or two or flip a few things, just know up front I don't mean to do that intentionally and I don't have some crazy translation they can't keep up with. I'll be using the King James, which may be uh, different from you, but uh, you'll know that up front. And then number two, because I'm dyslexic, my typical style of preaching or teaching is uh, what's known as the expository method. And that really means I often, 99% of the time, when I stand up, in about a 45-minute period, I cover three to five verses. I try to exhaust that, but I cover three to five verses. Now, if you've already opened Acts chapter 5, you know we've got 42 verses tonight. So there's two options for that. One is I just give up and quit, which will be the one we'll take. Or two, you better have brought a sandwich, and you pull that sandwich out at some point, and we'll be able to finish up. But what I do want to do because of that, I want to give you kind of the highlight of these chapters. I want to outline it with you, really, uh, for time's sake, and try to cover it from that perspective. So if you're someone who writes in your Bible's margins or takes notes, uh, maybe this will be handy for you. So there are three main ideas that come out, three main contexts, the way that I view them, uh, that come out in Acts chapter 5. 
And those main headings, and if you are writing these down, I would probably write them with some space in between, but those main headings come down to these three things. Number one, verses 1 through 11. So verses 1 through 11 of Acts chapter 5 discuss with us what I would call the problems of the early church, the problems of the early church. The second section that comes in behind that that really picks up there in verse 12 and goes through 17 or what I would define in that case as also the power of the early church. So you'll start noticing I like to match my letters, but the power of the early church. And then from verses uh, 17 through 42, so the vast majority of the chapter covers the persecution of the early church. So we've got those problems, we've got that power, and we've got that persecution. That's kind of your main headings. Now, to overview each of those sections and break it down a little bit more, those first 11 verses in talking about that, that problem or those series of problems in the church, it's interesting that we recognize that as what it is. This is the account, and it's exclusive to Acts 5, found nowhere else, but the account of Ananias and Sapphira. And what we find developing in that to kind of subhead those main headings is, when you look at it from what it is, verses 1 and 2 have to do with the deception. It's in verses 1 and 2 that Ananias and Sapphira, Ananias comes first, but he comes in basically and he tries to present to Peter in an assembly situation, I guess, but Peter's the one dealing with them. He tries to present to Peter that they have done something similar to what other characters in the preceding chapter, particularly Barnabas, have done, and that they have sold a piece of land, and that out of the graciousness of their hearts, really out of the sacrificial nature of who they were, that they brought the entirety of the payment, the portion, the monies, the finances of that land, and that they're now laying it like Barnabas did at the feet of the apostles under the guise that they can do anything they want to do with it so long as it furthers the gospel. That's much related to what we do each Sunday as we come together and we take the convenient time to have our offering as we're commanded to do and we in turn give those funds over to a local eldership or in some cases maybe men but we give that over and then they're given charge of that. But there's deception that comes in in that section. The second case, after there's deception, verses 1 and 2, verses 3, and going on just a tad bit farther than that, and 4, there's the discovery. Because Peter, not only is he no fool, but he's also, to some extent, not exactly sure how it bore out in the situation, but he's inspired of God, so he knows what's going on. He's not fooled by that. So Peter then in turn reports to them, look, you have come in here and you have determined and predetermined even that you're going to lie to me, a man, that you in turn really are lying unto God and you're doing this as well as to the Holy Ghost. And in a nutshell, Satan himself has caused you to do that. So that's, again, those next couple of verses. And then if you pick up in your text, verses 5 through 11 is what I would consider the death. So we've got this deceit or this deception. We've got this discovery. Now there's a death. And you recognize this from, I'm sure, reading as Bible students plenty of times before this chapter. Uh, comes in first Ananias. He's dealt with and he ends up 
dropping dead by the power of God apparently. Sapphira, his wife, comes in about three hours later. She walks into the similar assembly. She's confronted by Peter as well, questioned about her involvement in that. She determines to lie once again, and now she drops dead and is carried out by those same fellows. So that's that first section, and that is the problem that exists in the early church. And you say, well, why would you point that out? We'll come back to this later, but the reason I point it out like that is because if you were to read Acts chapters 1 and then really from chapter 2, 3, and 4, you don't have any issues like this. Chapters 2, 3, and 4 present the, the people of the church, which is the church itself. All of those Christians is basically just being great, sacrificial, giving individuals who are doing everything they can to extend the, the boundaries of the kingdom of God. But it's a problem because this enters in. This is kind of sin for the first time recorded at least. I'm not in denial that no one had ever sinned, but for the first time recorded by the inspiration of God, this problem arises. That second section, to break it out as we overview this and, and take time with it, came again down to that idea of the power of the early church. Now, a couple things that happen in this. Number one, there are signs that are done. This begins in verse 11. It talks about the great fear that came upon them. Then verse 12, it says, The hands of the apostles, I'm reading it, and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. Now, you understand as Bible students, when you see the word sign, that's King James speak, but it's translated that way for a purpose. When you see the word sign, you're talking about a miracle. Oftentimes, these things are referred to in Scripture. Sometimes in one text, even, they're compressed together to speak, to speak about signs, wonders, miracles, or even mighty deeds. Those are four of a number of designations that are given to a miracle or a miraculous act that is done by the laying on of some group's hands, whether that be Jesus in the beginning doing most of those, and then he turns that power and ability over to his apostles, and they continue through the book of Acts doing that. So there are signs that are done. But in addition to that, there are successes that are delivered right here. If you look at the context a little bit farther there, particularly verse 14 is where I point this out, it says there, and the believers were more added to the Lord multitudes, both men and women. Now, not to take a side street on this, but we have to understand and recall at least that when the signs, miracles, mighty deeds, wonders, when all of these things were done, whether it be by Jesus himself or by the apostles, the primary focus of all of those miracles that were done, the primary focus was to prove or to validate, is really the best word, the gospel itself. Now, when Jesus did those, he spoke from his mouth words, and that gave the victory of our salvation, but him doing miracles, signs, that validated that. And then that verse we just read, verse 14, tells us that it makes a difference. It made a huge difference in their day and time. Now, as a side note also, we might say, well, if, if only we had that today, if only we had modern-day miracles by the laying on of hands and uh, sick being healed and blind being recovered and, and demons being cast out, whatever, uh, it would make a hill of beans difference because you and I have the accurate, uh, perfectly inspired Word of God to read, and we can trust that. And even Jesus had to address his own disciples at one point uh, toward the end of his ministry and basically tell them, look, I've given you all the signs you're going to get. 
Okay, the signs are done, you can believe that or, or not. And that's kind of how he handled it. Of course, that miraculous age did extend apparently toward the end of the apostles' uh, lifespans as well. And then there's the last section there. I'm still looking at those scriptures, verses uh, 13 or, or 12 down to 17. Those sick are delivered, okay? There are sick that actually, it says in verse 15, particularly insomuch as they brought forth the sick in the streets and laid them on beds and couches, and that at least the shadow of Peter's passing by might have overshadowed some. Now, we don't know exactly what this implies. There are several times in Scripture when things are implied to have healing ability where they don't necessarily have that. For example, there's a man recorded in Mark chapter 2 as laying by the pool at Bethesda, and he's laying there waiting on the troubling of the waters. And there's a little uh, bracket that comes in in some translations. King James included that. It's a kind of a scribal note that says at that time, many believed that just the troubling of those waters, which they thought was because of the Holy Spirit, whether it was or not, I wouldn't argue or try. But they believed that would heal a person. And that's why the belief was if that man got in the pool first, he'd be healed. Of course, Jesus comes up, does not assist him in the pool, heals him without the pool, and of course, performs a miracle. Other cases we find in the book of Acts is the fact that many were even reaching out to the apostle Paul or to others and trying to get napkins, I don't know what you'd call that, uh, tissues, handkerchiefs, from Paul in the hopes that they believed that had some miraculous power. I don't know if anybody was ever healed by that, but they did it. Represented in this case, they believed. Whether it happened, I cannot tell. But if only Peter would walk by in his shadow cast, they'll be healed. There are many that are sick who are being delivered to him. And then the next section coming up in this, I've related already uh, the persecution of the early church. That's, that's a lot of ground to cover. I'll give you a number of points to try to outline, apply that for your own use. Beginning there in verse 17, the first thing that I notice about this is, is pretty simple, and that is that in this particular case, uh, there in verse, let me see, uh, 17 and 18 specifically, there is a, uh, the arrest, I got to get my, my A's and T's lined up, you'll understand why in a moment, there is an arrest that was treacherous. They come in and take hold of these disciples, much like they had done in the previous chapter, chapter 4. Peter and John, maybe some of the others were included as well. They come and take hold of them, and basically they say to them, you're not going to preach this gospel at all. Uh, we're going to put you in prison. Ultimately, they're going to threaten them with death. They are going to beat them on a couple of different occasions. We're going to absolutely stop this gospel. And the way they had formulated to do that, and this really was some of the religious people of the day, the scribes, the Pharisees, the others that were involved in it, they said, we'll put a stop to the gospel in this falsehood they believed of Jesus Christ because we're going to put you in prison. And that arrest was treacherous. Treacherous. Now, you say the word if you want uh, because there was no reason for it. These men were not guilty of any crime. They had not done any wrong. They had not harmed anybody. As a matter of fact, through their miracles, they were helping people, but they were arrested nonetheless. And that's what we find verses 17 and 18. Then in verse 19 through 23, we have the angel that was telling. What I mean by that is the next section of this, you could read through it there, 19 to 23, after they are placed into prison, an angel comes in, that's what the scriptures call him, 
an angel comes in and tells them, look, you get up, you go, you can leave this place. Ultimately, what we read in this section a little bit in the next one is that they did leave that prison so much into the point that when they left the prison, the doors, the bars were remaining shut. The guards remained standing there beside there, supposedly doing their job. And when they're confronted that these men have now been spotted over in the temple and preaching again, which is a theme that goes throughout chapters 4 and 5 as well, we didn't even know they were gone. The angel has come and told them to leave this place. And that's where we get the next section, verses 24 to 26. And that is the account was terrific. And I don't use the word terrific as, as to mean exciting. I mean, it's kind of one of those, a word we were uh, encouraged to use when I was in the Memphis School of Preaching by one of our instructors, it's ungetoverable. It was such a, such a case and such a miraculous case like I just described. Even the bars themselves had not been moved. Look at verse 24 in that context of it. It says this, And now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these things, they doubted them as to whether to they would go. And they came and told them, saying, Behold, the men who ye put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. They replied, verse 26, And there went the captain and the officers and brought them without violence, for fear the people said, lest they be stoned. And so it's just amazing because what these men did, I would assume is the back opposite of what I may have done, is that when they did get out of prison, when they were released by that angel's telling, they went straight back into the temple. They did exactly the same thing they had done previous that had gotten them put in that position. And that's that part of it. Verse 27 to 28 is the next section. We're only outlining here. The accusations that they would make against them were truthful. Accusations were truthful. Look at what said, verse 27. And when they brought them and set them before the council and the high priest, they asked, saying... Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us? Had they done that? Yes. Again, throughout both of these chapters, they told them not to teach. They told them not to preach. They didn't pay any attention. They, as they would see in the next context of this, again, preceding chapter as well, discusses, they basically said, we're going to do what God said regardless of what men say. And so that within itself, the accusations were truthful. But look at this. That's their answer. I'm leading into verse 29 to 32. Their answer was thorough. Peter, verse 29. And the other apostles, now Peter's the spokesman, but don't, don't think the others were just cowering down and, and trying to avoid trouble. They were there. Peter and the other apostles said, quote, We ought to obey God rather than man. We have to do what God says. And that's how they answered those accusations. Next section, moving quickly, verse 33 stands alone. And we heard that they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. That is, now this is the biggest word a boy from Munford slash ironic can use, and I can't spell it, but the adjudication in that case was terrifying. Now I had to have an A word to match up with the other A words, 
That is the judgment. It's terrifying. This is es es escalated, there we go, from chapter 4, where those two accounts have near about been mirrored. We're going to bring you into prison. We're going to lock you up, and then we'll turn going to let you loose, which is what they did in chapter 4. They voluntarily ended up letting them loose. We're going to beat you is what happens in chapter 5, and you're going to be escaped by the way of the angels telling. But in both cases, in those, both of those cases, that was the far, as far as the penalty had went. Now they said, we'll just kill them. They took counsel to slay them. But thanks be to God, there was a man named Gamaliel. Verse 34 to 40, pretty large section. Gamaliel was a part of the Pharisees, according to what we read here in verse 34. And he stood up in counsel of the Pharisees, named Gamaliel, doctor of the law, and reputation among all the people, commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. Put them out of the room. Let's talk about this. His discussion from verse 35 through 40, basically what Gamaliel said is, look, we're not having the effect on these men we had hoped to have. We would have thought that putting them in prison would have shut them up, and we would have thought that this would have ended this what they probably called and referred to as a sect, or at least this movement, and that would have worked. But Gamaliel suggests, and he's right in saying it, two options. He says, either this work and this, this, this group really is of God, and if so, we cannot stop it, no reason to try, or it's of men, and basically it'll taper itself out, people will give up on this. Are you not thankful as I am that the first option there was the true one? This is of God. Now look at the next section. There's two left. I promise we'll be done with the outline part. Look at verse 41. They beat them in verse 40. Verse 41 says, And they, that is these apostles, departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for his name. That is, their attitude was trustworthy. Men who not only were released, who on numerous occasions have gone right back in the temple and continued in their preaching and teaching, who now in turn are rejoicing because they, as they knew it, were suffering for his name. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting the way that James, and, and you know, whether or not he was present in around this, I mean, he was present around this time. Of course, he wasn't named in this way, but the half-brother of Jesus, James, opens his epistle by saying, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers, as King James speak, for various temptations. How can you do that? How is it that Jesus had taught his disciples earlier, Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22, Ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endureth to the end shall be saved. Well, these men picked up that attitude, and then that's why verse 42, their actions became a template. Their actions became a template. Because it reports this, and daily in the temple, and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus. How awesome is Acts chapter 5? 
it's inspiring to see the courage to see the enthusiasm in all these parts to see the, the bravery whatever you would tie to that that these men had it's a wonderful thing so in speaking about those latter two we notice the power of the early church it was great there were many miracles being done and many were being brought to Christ because of it the persecution of the early church was heavy but the result was that it didn't stop them it only caused them to multiply but that's kind of that sandwich that's the, the, the slice of bread that's placed on top of the chapter 4 slice of bread that was on the bottom and there's, there's some meat in the middle and in my mind this meat is tainted I don't know if you've ever done that. I had sandwich meat in the refrigerator and it looked great, smelled, well, it looked great. And then when you, you went to smell, it, it, not today, not any day. That's that section. So let's backtrack in our minds. In speaking of the first section, which we're going back to, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, concerning this problem if you will, that was a part of the early church, Ananias and Sapphira. The church was, was, was experiencing explosive growth in that day. If you go back through, and I mentioned this earlier, chapter 2, particularly at the beginning of the church on the day of Pentecost, chapter 3, chapter 4, that I understand you've already covered and reviewed that, the growth was, was absolutely immense in what they did. Now, the obvious thing that we know about that is there was obviously numerical growth, right? You go back into Acts chapter 2, we're told very quickly there in the beginning of it, Acts chapter 2, verse 41, that on that day, that is the day of Pentecost, there were 3,000 souls that were baptized. Peter and the 11 get up, they preach that one sermon. Of course, it was a, it was a humdinger. I mean, he, they peeled the paint off the walls with it. But they preached that one sermon, there are 3,000 souls added. You look in Acts chapter 2, that was in verse 41. You drop down a little bit farther than that. Verse 47, it says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, which is normally what I would take note of. He said, And all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily, such as should be saved or were being saved. ASV translation. Daily. You fast forward a bit in chapter 4 and verse 4. You've covered this already as well. Um, and I better turn the page, I'll be reading the wrong verse, but 4 and verse 4, it said, How be it? Many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. So they've gone to a number, which we're not sure of, that they're added to number. Some suggest, well, that was the 120 of the upper room. Some say, no, it was much smaller than that. It was the disciples or the apostles. Others say, well, no, we have no real count or number on that to, to who they were added, but there's at least 3,000. There's a number, Paul may suggest in 1 Corinthians 15, it could have been 500 brethren, and then now there's 5,000. The church is exploding numerically. We can also say that not only is it growing numerically, it apparently is growing spiritually. A couple of verses, again, you've covered in previous weeks. Go back to chapter 2 of Acts as well. Look in verse 42. It lets us know right there how they or why they were in turn uh, growing spiritually. Where there it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and breaking of bread with prayers. 
the church itself then and now grows when the doctrine there it's related to the apostles because Jesus gave them the keys to do such by inspiration as well when the truth is consistent and taught. I, I tell people sometimes, if, and, and I, I'm, I know I'm standing among you, so I'm, I'm making a, a huge factual assumption here, but I, I tell people all the time, if the church in which they attend, I'm using the word church loosely for this, but if the congregation which they attend does not base everything that it believes and teaches on this book right here, the best thing you can do for yourself is vacate the premises. And sometimes in people's hearts, you'll see them kind of crying out and saying, but wait, Grandma's buried in the backyard. She'd leave if she could. Truth has to be taught. So they're growing numerically. They're growing spiritually. But let me show you this. They're also growing, in that case, relationally. Again, that part of that verse at least showed that they were going from house to house. In chapter 4, which we have to cover to understand this, and I know you did already, but in chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, here's what the scriptures say. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul, neither than any of them that had all of the things that they possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. If there is a missing ingredient today, in our day, in many local congregations, it's that. Numerical growth sometimes could be there. And it's not what it ought to be. I'm not arguing that. Spiritual growth, certainly. If truth is taught, it's going to be existing. But sometimes the missing ingredient today seems to be that relational growth. Life's different. Every one of us, I, I can tell you exactly what will happen, and, and I, know, I know from last year and from, from being around other, we'll eventually leave this building tonight, and the vast majority of us will be able to look at another one and say, I'll see you Sunday. And we know that is a fact, because it won't happen before. Now, in this text, picking up in verse 33, after you have that cooperation, you have this exemplification. Look at it, verse 33. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus, and with great grace upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked. For, it says, as many as, as were possessors of lands and houses sold them and brought the prices of the, of the things that were sold and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and the distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, verse 36, is the primary example, whose surname was surnamed by the apostles Barnabas, which is interpreted as the son of consolation, encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Next word, next verse is not chapter, but a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession and kept back a part of the price of his wife and being privy to it, brought a certain part. You can kind of underline the word part there. And laid at the apostles' feet. 
But Peter said, Ananias, why had Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost, to keep back a part of the price of the land? Whilst it remained, verse 4, was it not thine own? After it was so, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, gave up the ghost, that is, the breath left him, he died. And great fear came upon them all that heard these things. And young men arose, verse 6, and wound him up and carried him and buried him. And about the space of three hours after, when his wife, knowing what had, uh, his wife, not knowing what had been done, came in. And Peter answered and said unto her, Tell me whether it sold, uh, whether the land you sold for this much? And she said, Yea, for so much. So she just agrees what Peter said, part of the lie. And Peter said unto her, How is it that you agreed together, that's speaking of agreeing together with uh, her husband as well as, to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. And then fell she down straightway at, the, at his feet and yielded up the ghost. She died as well. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon the church and upon as many as heard these things. Again, as Bible students, I know you've read that many times. And again, as I've summarized it in one main heading, this is a problem in the early church. And the problem is not the fact that they didn't give everything. It's not the fact that when they tried to mirror what Barnabas had done, and apparently others. Barnabas was just the, the last recorded named person in verse 36. The preceding verses 33 to 35 had told us that many people were doing this. Many people were taking their possessions, selling those things right, outright, and coming and presenting the, the funds of those things at the apostles' feet for the purpose of the work being extended. The problem was not how much they gave. It's not that they didn't give a, a certain amount. It's not that they had to give all of it. That's what Peter expresses in saying, you know, while it was in your hand, you had to do with it what you wanted. You didn't have to lie. You didn't have to do this. What happens here is that they were filled with greed. And more than that, they were filled with pride. They looked at what I would recognize as the sacrificial giving of the others, primarily Barnabas. They saw that sacrificial giving that he had, and they in turn gave a superficial mind to that. They looked at what Barnabas did, and I guess out of, out of some form of, of sincerity in their minds, not to... Uh, in God's eyes, but toward men, they said, you know what? If we do what Barnabas did, we'll get what he did. Well, the thing is, what is revealed to us in the text that Barnabas got was not the recognition of the people. I'm not arguing that he didn't get some. But a Barnabas gift, it says that he gave glory to God in it. They made a different choice. 
So there are four things, and I've got to move very, very quickly, okay? I've got to move really quickly with these. There are four things I want to consider about these 11 verses. Two of them will be more negative. Obviously, two will be more positive. The first two come in the form of beware statements. Beware. You know, you got beware the dog, beware this, be, beware statements. Number one, we have to, because they should have, we have to beware, if you will, of pretended devotion. You see, it had nothing again to do with the money. It didn't have anything to do with the amount. Peter did not say, you know, why did you only bring 82.5% uh, of the gift? Or we don't know what they gave. Why did you only bring a portion of what you sold the land for? He wasn't getting them about that. God had not instructed him to condemn them over that. He was approaching them about where their devotions lie and the lies that they told as a result. Now I step back to this, I say, well, you know what? We live under a different system. You know, we live completely, and they did too, by the way. They didn't understand it. But we live under a system where we give on the first day of the week, and as we do that, we give freely. We give out of the goodness of our heart. We give as cheerful givers, and we get to determine what that amount is, and that amount could be variable between one person or another, and, and there's never a percentage nailed to that. And, and, you know, we can do with whatever we want. We can take our jobs, our careers, and our funds, and we can give a certain amount, or we can take our, our profits off of anything like maybe they did, and we give a certain amount, and we're never condemned for that. It's all about our attitude was for them also. But where they fall short is that they pretended to be devoted. And although the financial stuff can't apply to this, it goes farther than that. It's why it needs to be recognized. That's why I have to be reminded of this type of thing. In asking myself honestly, and this is what turned chapter 5 more difficult than, to me in preparing for it than I thought it would, I have to ask myself, what is my devotion really all about? You know, whatever I'm doing for God. How, you know, I have pretended devotion sometimes. I have times where I, I want to look like more of a Christian than I really am, admittedly. I want to be impressive to the others where someone would at least not, not to stumble over my actions as a Christian the way I live my life. But a pretended devotion is not a true devotion at all. Beware of pretended devotion. Second point, moving very quickly now, super fast. The second idea is we need to beware of premeditated deception. According to what Peter reveals to them in front of us in these 11 verses, he lets them know that they themselves have conspired to do this. This is not something that Ananias determined to do and, and Sapphire was not privy to. It's not something that either the opposite of that happened. They conspired in this. I don't know what the conversation was, but other than the fact I know Satan at some point was involved in it in their hearts, basically they sat down somewhere around a table or in a, in a, in a room and said, wow, I can't believe we got that much money out of this piece of land. That's a pretty good deal. You know, what we ought to do is we ought to give part of that to church. And of course, that was a wonderful idea. And someone in the room, one of them said, hold up. If we do it similar to, if we at least make them think we're doing what Barnabas did, look at what that'll be. Let's go and let them believe we're giving everything. 
let's gain from this. And they conspired. Sapphira comes in the room as we just read. She walks in and Peter says, hey, did you sell this land for this amount? We don't know what that was. And she said, oh, yeah, yeah, sure. She's right there with him. We have to beware of premeditated deception. Here's the better part of it. Be sure, be absolutely sure of the penetrating detection of our devotions. God can see whether or not you and I are sacrificial or superficial. He sees right through that. A couple of passages, I'll give you the note of them. We won't get to, get to them necessarily because of time, obviously. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 is one of them we often use to describe the inspiration of the Bible and the trueness of the Word and all this. But it gets down to saying that the Word of God is sharper than any two of the sword, even the piercing of Sunday. And watch this. To the thoughts and the intents of the hearts. To be judged by our actions is one thing. Many men can do that. But to be ultimately judged by our hearts, only God can do and will. Other passages indicate much the same. For example, uh, Psalm chapter 139 in verse 23 and 24. I'll read that to you. Search me, O God, know my heart. Try and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me. That's what the psalmist said. Why? Because he knew God could see that. We have to be aware. We have to live, as we would say, at the very top of our P's and Q's because God sees the heart. As a matter of fact, Jesus took many of the, the sins and the actions of the Old Testament and expressed to the people when he was here on earth with them basically that, look, you don't have to always do the actual sin itself that comes outward, that comes with an actual performance that others can see. Oftentimes those sins do take place and are seen in the heart. So be sure, be absolutely sure of the penetrating detection that God has. Last point here. Be sure, however, of the purification of the disciples. You know, there's a bright side of this text right here. The latter verses that we read across in this, verses 5 through 11 at least, the second half of this, indicate, yes, these, these individuals died for this cause. They did. They came in, they pretended the devotion, they lied before God, they premeditated such a lies and sin, and, and they died for the cause. But the text closed out by saying, quote, I'm in verse 11 again, and great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. The fear that's listed here, this is the Greek word phobos, which is the shaking in your boot type of fear, but is also related to the idea of respect. Even the outsiders, going all the way back into chapter 2, there was a respect that had been given already to the church. Praising God and having favor with all the people the Lord added to the church daily such as were being saved. That respect carried on. And although it would make others in verse 12 and forward more hesitant, I guess, in seeing what had happened, at the same time, it allowed people to see the truth that I have to be fully, completely devoted to God if I'm going to please Him. 
And God often allows that. He judges sinners. He judges saints. He judges his sons. And he did that right here. This is a saving judgment that came upon them. Any question or comment? That was, that was two. I heard that. All right. Thank you very much. All righty. Go ahead and open your Bibles back up, if you don't mind, to Acts chapter 5 once again. Of course, in the last hour, I tried to overview the entire chapter and then tried to look very quickly, and it was more quickly than I assumed, but to look at the first 11 verses. But one of those sections that stands out to us on those pages, particularly in chapter 5, that comes out so strongly is the confidence and the willingness that those disciples, those apostles, and others, I assume as well, had in teaching the truth of God. And the fact that they were willing to do that in, in spite of the fact of what might occur in their lives. You know, we at this point in life, and I'm, I'm getting more and more cautious about saying this, but we at this point in our lives where we live in our day, in our time, the direct persecutions that come upon us are not nearly as strong, I believe, as they were on the early church, at least in our area. Uh, I haven't read of anyone or come across anyone in the headlines of any news source or anything like that that in recent days has been marched in on and asked if they're a child of God, a Christian, and then in turn slain because they confessed his name. Not read anything like that. And I, I'm praying that those days do not come, but at the same time I understand that they could. And, and that very well could be closer than we have once or ever known it to be. But these men, when they were persecuted, cast in the prison a number of times throughout chapters 3, 4, and 5, when they were beaten and, and ultimately when they were threatened that they would be slain, these men came back, Peter and John particularly, and we read across this in the last hour, verse 29, it said this, And Peter and the other apostles said, We ought to obey God rather than men. How important is it in the times in which we do live when much of the world is kind of getting twisted on its head and perverted in its thinking? And I mean by that, that word just means twisted. <laughs> and the idea that they're, they're going so far away from what is the standard of God's word. And not just that, not just those that are participating directly in those sins, but the, the amount of people just, just on, the, on the brink of that, some of which are even our own brethren who are not necessarily participating. Obviously, they know better, but we've slowly gotten to the point where it becomes acceptable. You know, that's their life, this is my life, so long as there's a separation between that and I'm not involved, it's okay the way they live. These apostles, Peter and John and others among them, seemingly did not have that mindset. Their mindset was more along the lines of, I'll live the way I live because God said it, and you should live the way you live because he said the same. And there was no fear, no favor in them that they were approaching people continuously and going into places like the temple, which would have been overly populated, overrun with people, and standing before them and proclaiming clearly and distinctly the Word of God and having no shame, no, no situation in their lives where they were ashamed to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and being willing to interject in every man and woman's life that the answer to whatever your difficulty is, your problem, your situation, and more importantly, your sin continues to be just that, the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
I don't flip or flop much in my teaching or preaching tonight. We move from chapter two, three, four, and, and barely, I even, in this, this copy of the text, I turn maybe one page. But I want you to go with me for just a moment at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we've of course got an epistle here penned by the Apostle Paul by inspiration. But Paul, it seems, and I'm having to make an assumption here in what I'm about to say, but it seems that Paul has been approached by some people, some individuals, and basically asked the question, which is not present, by the way, in the first and second Corinthian letters you have this, where Paul answers questions that we don't have uh, the question penned or written. But they seem to have walked up to Paul and said, Paul, why in this world do you do what you do? Why do you work so hard? Why do you put your life and body in jeopardy as often as you do? Why would you make a choice like that? And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, here's what Paul says in answer to that question. He doesn't speak only for self either. He said, wherefore we, that's the key word, wherefore we labor, that is we toil, we work, that whether we be present or absent, here's the phrase I've got highlighted in my copy of the text, that we might be accepted of Him. Paul said, we do what we do because we desire to be accepted of Him. Now that's a parallel, really. Because that is, in a nutshell, the attitude, the mindset of all of these disciples that we've been discussing, you've been discussing more throughout the book of Acts. We do what God says first. You know, there'll be situations that you have been in, I know, I can, I can just say that and, and be assured of that and confident. There are situations, there will be situations, there have been situations in your life where someone just on the outside of your life, maybe it's a family member even, a neighbor, a co-worker, a classmate, where they look at you in the life that you live as a Christian, that is a follower of Jesus Christ, one who's been set apart and called out from the world, and they look at you, as Peter said, wherein they think it's strange. 1 Peter 4 and verse 4, that we run not with the same excess of right, speaking evil of you. And they look at the way that you live and they say to themselves, you know, why would you want to live like that? Why can't you just join and do what we do? And why can't we just have peace among ourselves? And that's the, a kind of a, a $10 word they throw out nowadays to basically say, you've got to accept me for who I am and that's all you can do. If I were Peter or if I were Paul, I would look to them and say, you know what? I've got to obey God rather than men. And Paul says, whether I'm present, whether I can be seen, or whether I'm absent, I want to be accepted of Him. You will not always be accepted by your peers. You will not always be accepted, in some cases, by your loved ones, your family members, whomever. But what matters most and what matters all in judgment is whether or not you are accepted of Him. You know, one quote I heard a few years ago, I'll probably uh, mess it up in trying to say it, but basically it comes down to, to something like this. If we please God, it doesn't matter who we displease. But if we displease God, it doesn't matter who we please. We're accepted of Him. If you're not and you're not a child of God, then the first and foremost way that you have to be accepted of Him or you have to obey God 
rather than men is you've got to come to him begin with, by the way, the gospel. You've got to come before him in full faith, knowing that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. He was the son of God. He was God in a body on this earth. He was the incarnate of God. You've got to accept him and trust him and have faith in him for that. You've got to be willing to repent of your sins and turn away. You know, we come up through this life, we're influenced, we're, we're uh, sometimes hindered by the world in which we live and we learn and we practice sin many, many times like they do. And to be willing to repent, that is to turn away from this world and turn only toward Christ. I mean, it's not a half turn, it's a whole turn. To look and focus on Christ, that, that's a necessity to be accepted of Him. Be willing to confess His name. That's really what the book of Acts is about. It's about a group of men and women and individuals who continually confess the name of Jesus as their saving servant and their only sacrifice. Be willing to be baptized. Why is that? Because Jesus commanded upon us. Because He illustrated in so many occasions how how important baptism was in the fact that it is what saves us. 1 Peter 3, 20 and 21, using the picture of the ark and the salvation that's found in it and the fact that baptism as well doth now also save us. Somebody says, well, that's just a picture. That's just a type. Uh, yes, and he commanded upon every man and woman. It's a contact, his blood that we have. If you're here tonight and you're not a child of God's, I want to pray that you are accepted of him today. And you need to pray for yourself that you'll make the choice to allow that to take place. You're here tonight and you're more like I am. I fall more in the category tonight of what Ananias and Sapphira were. That's the main part of our focus toward the end. And, and I cannot argue the fact that they were Christians. They were among those disciples. Not apostles, but among those disciples. They were followers of Jesus. But their devotion was pretended. And when the rubber met the road, as we sometimes say, those two individuals determined that we can just falsify what is truth and we can be pretended as, as we would say as Christians and we can be fakes and we can be hypocrites. How many times have you heard the attack toward the church? Somebody says, well, I won't go to that church because that's full of hypocrites. Where else are they supposed to be? That's not to imply we should be that, but it is to imply that a hypocrite is someone that is at least pretending to be something. The world's not even doing that. If you need forgiveness tonight, it would be a convenient time. Not only to pray for yourself for that and be willing to repent, but to even ask your brothers and sisters to do the same. And allow us to be what we are, and that is your brothers and sisters in Christ and a part of the family that Christ possesses. An invitation song has been selected to encourage you. If you want to be encouraged by that and come to God and be accepted of Him, why don't you do that while together we stand and sing?